But our brain and our brainstem responds to CO2 changes. Um, you know, and when it detects a higher CO2, it will breathe harder and faster. It will make you retract, it will make you tachypnic, it will make you flare, it will make you grunt. But oxygen doesn't do the same thing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Pete's Grit Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current pediatric ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a pediatric critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Pete's Grit Podcast? Absolutely. Pete's Grit is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We are working with pediatric critical care educators around the world to create high-yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email or our website at pedscrit.com. We're hoping to add to the continually growing online community of Peds ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics. Yes, and we are here to ask them questions. So Zach, who are we talking with today? So today we're excited to have Dr. Bill Borkosh. Dr. Borkosh is an assistant professor of pediatrics and a practicing pediatric critical care physician at the University of Florida. Very interested in medical education. We have a great conversation. Yeah. Today, we are going to talk about the pathophysiology of the respiratory exam, specifically work of breathing. This is one of my favorite things about being a pediatrician. And Bill is really going to go deep into why we see the work of breathing that we see and what it means. He is really fighting against being hyper-focused on the oxygen saturation and wants to think more about ventilation. And I think this episode really changes the conversation. Yes, definitely one of those fundamental topics that we all need to know by heart. So today is part one of a two-episode series on this core topic. Let's jump right in. Well, Bill, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. We're excited to dive into this topic. To get things started, will you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? Thank you. No, I'm, I'm uh, excited to be here. So my name is Bill Bordkosh, William Bordkosh. I'm an assistant professor in the Division of Pediatric Critical Care in uh, the University of Florida at Shands Children's Hospital. I did my doctorate in medicine at Albany Medical College in New York back in, I guess I completed 2011, that's crazy. And, and I completed pediatric residency and pediatric chief year at um, UMass Medical School in uh, 2015. And I did my pediatric critical care fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital, graduated in 2018. And since then I've been at the uh, University of Florida. My research interests and specialties are involved in respiratory innovation, uh, as well as complex care management. So the respiratory innovation stuff, like we've written papers on like split ventilation, uh, using one vent to ventilate two people in the era of COVID, um, and done some uh, pa- a paper on high flow and how it generates PEEP. And uh, currently I'm working on projects uh, involved in using simulation to train caregivers of uh, parents with children with uh, complex medical diseases, specifically tracheostomies and emergency management. So uh, that's my two TLDR background, I guess. Oh, wow. You must be busy. Especially now, but it sounds like in general. <laughs> yeah, especially now. Florida, unfortunately, in the uh, Delta variant COVID era has been quite busy. Same way in Texas, for sure. So so we're going to talk about the physiology of increased work of breathing today, correct? Why is this such an important topic? This is so core. It drives me crazy, like how many people, even at like high levels of like specialty training, still just don't, they talk about the basics with confidence, but without like really thinking about 
why we do the things we do and like to do anything in, in critical care. I feel like the reason that a lot of us go into it is because we, we love understanding the why of things and why things happen, you know, and each aspect of work of breathing is done for a reason in our body. And if you understand why that's happening and what your body's trying to do, Honestly, I believe that it extends to other things in critical care, whether it's managing a ventilator, uh, deciding what mode of ventilation you want to do, uh, and addressing the underlying physiology as well to make the kid better. Sure thing. Let's just jump right into a case that's really common in pediatric critical care. So for our patient, we have a six-month-old with bronchiolitis presenting to the emergency department. He's alert, but has some increased worker breathing and saturating 82% on room air. So Bill, what are your initial thoughts when you hear this case? When I'm thinking about this, uh, this kind of case, um, this is one where I feel like people's instinct is to do one thing, which is to put the baby on oxygen. And then I, my next thing is to assume that they don't know why they did that. I know. Why, what do you guys do? In this? You know, as the critical care fellow, you know, I see the, the blue number on the screens in the 80s. I want to fix that. <laughs> oh, yeah, immediately. Yeah, I put them on nasal cannula before I did anything else. Of course, of course, you got to put them on nasal cannula, right? Um, but but why? That's 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 what I'm asking. You know, there's there's like this inherent thought that you know the oxygen level is low. That's probably causing the kid to work to breathe. But what we're going to unpack further in this in this talk is that it might not be the case. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk. Let's talk more about it for sure. So maybe we'll start with some background. So maybe let's let's get to the fundamentals. Yes, about cardiopulmonary stuff. So like down to the core of it, I would, uh, I'd, I'd start by talking about like, what do the lungs do? Like, so what, uh, what are their two things? So we know that the lungs oxygenate and they ventilate, they deal with oxygen, they deal with CO2 and getting down to that, uh, oxygenation and, and ventilation. Uh, I find that like, it can be helpful before like making it more, uh, relevant in like a hands-on way to think about it in terms of the physics of it. So oxygenation is probably the first thing that I would kind of talk about. Did you guys remember the alveolar oxygenation equation? I pimp my first year fellows on this all the time. I know. I don't have it on a flashcard yet. I'm going to be honest, but I've seen it before. Um, So we've got the partial pressure of alveolar oxygen. And then the the FiO2, we're multiplying that by sort of the dry pressure that we're seeing for our PiO2, our pressure of inspired oxygen. And so we're taking the atmospheric pressure, which is 760 at sea level. We're subtracting the, the issue of vapor pressure or the sort of the wet pressure there. And so we've got PaO2, the alveolar uh, oxygenation, sort of your the oxygen, and then you're subtracting the carbon dioxide. So you've got the PaCO2 divided by a respiratory quotient to sort of get exactly how much CO2 and you're subtracting that from your oxygenation. So it's basically calculating the pressure of oxygen that's in the alveolus, right? Exactly. But what about a minute ventilation equation? So when we're talking about CO2, do you guys remember what the minute ventilation equation is equal to? So it's totally different. That's your fundamental, you know, tidal volume times your respiratory rate. Right. So what's the, what's the core difference here? Like when we're talking about like oxygenation versus ventilation, what do you need to slam oxygen into your capillaries Versus what do you need to suck CO2 out of your capillaries in terms of like core physics like concept? I always think about pushing oxygen in with high FiO2s and high pressures. And I think about bulk flow for CO2, getting exactly. air in, getting air out. Exactly. You see that in the equations as well. 
Exactly, exactly. It's shown in the equations. You need you need a ton of pressure to get oxygen in there, and CO2 seems to diffuse freely. So first, let's talk about oxygen. So uh, why do we need a lot of pressure to get oxygen in there? So in a normal human, if I were to, or you were to do an arterial stick on me, just uh, you nail the radial artery stick, whatever, one shot, and you measure the PaO2, the P arterial O2, what would my uh, arterial oxygen be, assuming I don't have COVID? Typically 90 to 100. Yeah, yeah, like 90, 95, 100 maybe. And if you were to do that alveolar oxygenation equation at sea level, so 21% times 760 minus 47 minus 40 over the 0.8 respiratory quotient, what does that P alveolar O2 come out to? Closer to 150. It's when you subtract, it's 150 before you subtract the CO2, but with the CO2, it actually comes out to about 100 because 21% times about like 713. Uh, is about 150, and then minus 40 over 0.8 is about 50. So the point is, is that in the alveolus, the PaO2 is about 100, and in the artery, it's about, or the capillary, it's about 95. The point is that you need a ton of partial pressure to even drive any oxygen into there. And CO2, alternatively, like arterial blood, you'd, on that same blood gas sample, if you were to stick me, what's my arterial CO2? Typically around 40. Yeah, and then in the air that we're breathing, uh, what's the CO2? Negligible, almost zero. Zero. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. I'll assume point oh four. You're right. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's it's negligible, exactly. And furthermore, CO two is sixteen times more soluble about uh, than oxygen, so it wants to leave. It wants to get out of the body. You really need a lot of pressure to drive oxygen. CO two will diffuse freely. So knowing that and knowing that it's volume of air for CO2 and pressure uh, to get CO2 out of the body and pressure to get oxygen into the body, I usually like to kind of tie it back to like a normal case and a normal kid because kind of talking about this stuff sometimes can be really um, abstract. So would this be a good time to transition to like talking about a clinical case and like matching? What do you guys think? Sure, I think so. Yes. We've talked about the six-month-old with bronchiolitis. In the ED, they're desiding to 82% and they're sort of diffusely retracting. Do you want to go through sort of by respiratory exam finding and talk about what exactly is happening there and what we're accomplishing with it? Yeah. uh, So when you examine this kid, it's important to think about like what work of breathing signs are they doing? I usually tell people that their stethoscope is essentially useless um, (laughs) from a critical care perspective. And what I mean by that is like, don't never use your stethoscope. It can be useful to like identify like a focal pneumonia or whatever. But like, you know, uh, from a critical care perspective, when I look at a kid, I'm thinking, how can I make this kid not have a respiratory arrest event? Uh, How can I prevent badness from happening? Because I want to get through to the end of my day uh, without anyone dying or having (laughs) having a bad day. If they have a good day, I have a good day. And with your eyeballs, you can see clinical signs of breathing right away. Common signs that we're looking for, tachypnea, retractions, nasal flaring, grunting, accessory muscle breathing, which is slightly different than retractions. Uh, We'll talk about that. Tripoding, cyanosis, and I include altered mental status uh, on there as well. Let's start with the one that I love the most. Any intern that I've ever worked with and any senior resident I ever worked with in residency would make me sit there and manually calculate the respiratory rate. (laughs) Why do we care so much about tachypnea? What are we getting from that? Well, I'm glad they made you do that because I I think it's probably the most important one. Um, I mean, if you go on any ED board and you look, everyone's respiratory rate is 16 to 20. doesn't matter on the age, doesn't matter (laughs) on what's going on. I know that they're not counting it. So And the reason I know it's important is because tachypnea is the most statistically sensitive sign for lower respiratory tract disease. 
And what that means is if you don't have tachypnea, disease is probably above the level of the vocal cords. Like if someone's saying I can't breathe, but they're, they are breathing 16 times a minute, um, then they probably just have a stuffy nose or something like that. Um, versus if they say I can't breathe and they're breathing 40, 50 times a minute, probably something below the vocal cords, like in the lungs or a croup or whatever. I think it's so key to highlight how you said uh, tachypnea, it can be one of the most sensitive markers for badness happening in a patient. And also wanted to go back and reinforce how much of the respiratory exam is actually a visual assessment. I feel like as our learners, or especially early on for me, I got so focused on, you know, listening to the lungs as being my, essentially being my respiratory exam, but we can get so much just from looking at that child at the door, you know, getting all these physical exam findings that you've already mentioned. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, if you see someone who's tachypnic, you know, it's starting to make you think like, maybe I should intervene. But what I would ask you next is, or what I usually ask folks to do or think about, if someone's tachypnic, then the, the reason I ask this is because it informs your intervention or what's the next thing that you're going to do. Is someone trying to oxygenate or ventilate when they're tachypnic? So thinking about the equations that we mentioned earlier, you know, being tachypnic, increasing the respiratory rate, it's going to have much more to do with carbon dioxide clearance than it should have to do with oxygenation. Absolutely. Like minute ventilation is tidal volume times respiratory rate. Yeah, I mean, that that's the, how it starts. And, and it's important, right? I mean, like, of course, your, your lungs are going to want to increase their respiratory rate. Um, because if you're breathing a lower tidal volume and your minute ventilation is lower, what's going to happen to your pH or your CO2? So lower minute ventilations, you'll have higher CO2s. Good. And what's going to happen to your pH? It'll go down for respiratory acidosis. And if you your pH went really low, what's going to happen to you? I mean, myocardial dysfunction, respiratory arrest. Yeah, you're going to die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So All the body... badness we're trying to defend. Or prevent. <laughs> right. Your body doesn't like that. So the tachypnea is one of the many mechanisms it does to prevent that sort of acidosis, organ dysfunction, protein degeneration, and to preserve like just normal body homeostasis. Absolutely. Oh, fantastic. And we'll be sure to include in our post age normogram for what's the normal respiratory rate in each age and and all good information like that. Now we moved on past tachypnea. Let's get to retractions, another common finding. Yeah, retractions. So uh, retractions like uh, are different than accessory muscle use, and we'll get to accessory muscle use in a moment. But So retractions, uh, do they happen during inspiration or expiration when you guys are thinking about them? If you're retracting in, it has to be during inspiration, right? Absolutely. Yes, nailed it. But I'll tell you that it's not active contraction of muscle. And that's why I differentiate it from accessory muscle use. So uh, retractions, you may remember, can occur in lots of different areas in the suprasternal region, uh, the supraclavicular region, uh, subcostal, and as well as intercostal between the ribs. I mean, try to contract your intercostals yourself right now. Like, I I certainly can't do it, you know? So if it's not active muscle contraction, then the next question is, what makes our soft tissue go into the body like that uh, with each inspiratory breath? Well, I think we talk about the respiratory muscles, and what I love about the way you structured the post is that it is a muscle, it's your diaphragm working harder to generate more negative intrathoracic pressure and suck the air in. And so exactly. you see the retractions. Exactly. Yeah. The, the diaphragm has one job. It's very simple. In a way, it's like, It's just so much simpler than any job that we'll ever get in medicine. All it has to do is contract. And if there's an ammonia or something in there, the diaphragm knows it's harder to contract. So the only thing it knows how to do and the only thing it can do is contract harder. And it contracts harder. It generates more of a negative pressure. And if it generates more of a negative pressure, what you suck in more air, yes. But what else do you suck in? 
I mean, you can even cause collapse of your airways if you're having a huge negative pressure. Exactly. All your soft tissues. So the tissue of the airway can collapse. It will suck in the suprasternal tissue, the subcostal. I generally find that intercostals are, are the most severe of the retractions if I were to like rate them in that way. Um, and suprasternal retractions uh, can be some of the more mild ones, though you can see pretty profound suprasternal retractions in the anesthesia suite or in people with upper airway foreign bodies obstructing. For whatever reason, I don't fully understand but I find that these uh, retractions can become quite deep in the suprasternal region when there's an upper airway obstruction. Yeah. I'm going to run this by you guys because I think I've heard this framework before and I really like it, but it sort of goes against the concept of sort of diffuse negative intrathoracic pressure. Mm-hmm. Is that especially in asthma and other things you retract to the level of your obstruction? And so for croup, you're retracting here for asthma, but moving good air, maybe it's only at the bottom. And then if you're asthma, but maybe starting to get tight at your bases and only move air to your mid lung fields, maybe you'll start to, to retract in the middle. That's it's so simplistic and it doesn't make sense with the physics but that someone told me that during engineer so So the way i i envision it and the way that makes sense to me is that like yes interthoracic pressure is evenly negative However, the whether something collapses together or not depends on its radius. So if the radius of an area is tighter uh, or more narrow, it's more likely to collapse. Like think about like sucking back on a straw that's very thin or like a plastic bottle uh, with a thin neck versus sucking back on like a, a plastic cup, like say one of those beer pong cups, right? It's a lot easier, like with a bottle with like a thin neck, like a Poland Springs bottle to like get everything to collapse. But if you were to try to like get the beer pong cup to collapse or something, you would have to suck back really hard. So my feeling is that the negative pressure generated is like is higher in that area just because the radius of whatever is uh, getting obstructed um, gets tighter. So like air pressure gets more negative in that region due to that. Sure. And that makes sense. And thinking about resistance, even kind of introducing that topic, that brings us up to nasal flaring. So you, know, you see nasal flaring quite often, especially in those young babies with bronchiolitis like our case. What are your thoughts when you see a child with nasal flaring? Hey, I'm Ciara Minova, a graduate student of psychology and neuroscience of mental health at King's College London, and I'm so excited to share with you my new podcast, which is called Behind the Stigma. Every other week, I will be mainly talking to the podcast clinical psychologists, clinicians, researchers, educators in the field, you name it, basically people that I find so inspiring and that will help us understand the latest research, concepts, but also complexities and controversies surrounding mental health. These are going to be some great discussions and a peek into the fascinating world of psychology, neuroscience, and psychiatry. When I see nasal flaring, it makes me think back to my uh, NICU days because this is one of the things that we would talk about a lot and like one of the signs of uh, increased work of breathing that would kind of uh, make us action on something. Uh, and the reason is, is because in babies, you sort of touched on that uh, resistance can be, uh, in their upper airways can be quite profound. Uh, like in the area, in the upper airways, like from the nose, like uh, to the pharyngeal area, the total airway resistance in a newborn baby is 50% of that is accounted for just by that region. Uh, and then the rest is from the lungs down. So 
it's crazy like how how much resistance up there and if you remember resistance is proportional to like the radius to the fourth power uh, so if you get a big boogie up there uh, that includes 50 percent of your nasopharynx that's going to increase resistance one over two to the fourth power 16 times which is crazy you know so uh, when you see nasal flaring, uh, what do you guys think would be like the reason that your body would would be trying to flare? I'm impressed by how much it increases the radius with just that simple movement. Yeah. I was going to say, when I see a kid that's flaring, I always think about those bronchiolytic kids. But it's unclear to me really clinically looking at them if it's an oxygenation issue or a ventilation issue. <laughs> Oh, you know, we didn't actually touch base on that with retractions. Uh, that's a little bit of a uh, boo-boo on my point. But yeah, so uh, so we can talk about uh, both of them kind of together. So with nasal flaring, if you're flaring, you kind of touch on, you're increasing the radius of the nary, which will do what to the resistance? Decrease it. Decrease it. And if you decrease the resistance, what's going to happen to the flow of air? Should increase. increase. And the flow of air is volume over time. So you're pulling in a larger what? Volume. Total volume. Good. And if you pull in a larger tidal volume, are you trying to oxygenate or ventilate? You're going to increase your minute ventilation and you're going to ventilate. Right. So CO2 again. And then coming back to retractions for a second. You said, we said the diaphragm contracts harder, generates a more negative pressure. If you generate more of a negative pressure, uh, what's going to happen to flow? Increase. It's going to increase and flow is volume over time. So uh, what are you going to be pulling in a larger amount of? Volume. Exactly. So when you're trying to retract, are you trying to um, uh, ventilate or oxygenate primarily? Increasing your tidal volume, increasing ventilation, and trying to lower your CO2. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I hope you guys are starting to see a pattern here. Oh, yeah. That nasal cannula doesn't seem so clever anymore. (laughs) We'll get there. It's not that bad. Uh, So I think the next sign of uh, work of breathing that I wanted to talk about was uh, grunting. So retractions, nasal flaring, uh, both of those happen during inspiration. When does grunting occur during the respiratory cycle? So grunting is, is, occurs during exhalation. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. On the, on the exhale. So um, uh, when you exhale, <coughs> kids' grunts can sound kind of different. So it's hard to pin like an exact like phonation to it. But uh, what's important is that you're hearing a consistent and expiratory sort of sound. And what a kid is trying to do or what they're doing with their body there is they're breathing against a partially closed epiglottis to kind of like get a bit of a back pressure, or in other words, a positive and expiratory pressure, more commonly known as PEEP. And uh, if you're trying to generate PEEP, are you trying to oxygenate or ventilate? So this is the one for oxygenation. PEEP increases airway pressure, increases oxygenation. You're right. And what else are you trying to do? <laughs> so it's a little bit- your airways open. Right. Good. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So the, the thing is, is peep, we are taught uh, during residency. I mean, I remember when I was resident and fellow is I would use peep as my primary oxygenator. And of course it would work. Like if you think back to that alveolar um, oxygenation equation, um, the FiO2 times the pressure of the atmosphere is like the amount of oxygen partial pressure that's in the alveolus minus some other stuff. Um, and if you increase that pressure of the atmosphere by going up on your peep or the pressure in the lungs, of course you're going to oxygenate better. But it's kind of like a physiology trick. However, uh, there's something else that I feel like wasn't talked to me enough about in residency or even at the beginning of my fellowship, and that's the concept of closing capacity. Have you guys heard of that concept before? You know, just somewhat in reading, but it'd be really helpful to get a, a touch up on that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good idea, and you, you'll see it all the time in your vent- intubated and ventilated patients. But closing capacity is the functional residual capacity 
below which you begin to have atelectasis. So functional residual capacity, you may remember, is the amount of air left in your lungs after a normal breath, after a normal tidal volume. Uh, it sounds fancy, but really just you take a breath and the amount of air that's left in your lungs, that's your FRC. The closing capacity is actually like a theoretical value. But then thing to know with closing capacity is that there's some conditions that will increase your closing capacity. Anything with, uh, that gives a restrictive lung disease component will increase your closing capacity. Um, pneumonia, ARDS, whatever, those are some common examples. And if that closing capacity increases, it's important that as the intensivist that you do your best to maintain that FRC. Because if you have atelectasis, that's tidal volume that's not participating in, uh, that's lost tidal volume basically. And lost tidal volume is will essentially like run you into uh, CO2 retention. I think that the way that we talk about closing capacity is almost a contradiction because we talk about closing capacity and increasing your capacity, but really we're just talking about the minimum volume you need to stench your smallest airways open, right? So we call yeah, it capacity, but right. really it's a, sort of a minimum. It's a minimum. Yeah, it's like the bare minimum that you need here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, I never actually thought about it, but it, it does kind of seem like a bit of a misnomer, doesn't it? I feel like we talk more about closing capacity in those younger babies. Any any particular reason that comes to mind that we this tends to come up for our small babies that are ventilated? Oh my gosh, I talk about this all the time. Um, the, the reason I talk about it all the time is because uh, we have a lot of babies uh, with spinal muscular atrophy who come to our hospital because we do uh, genetic therapy there. And a lot of them are tiny babies, but also not having musculature causes similar problems. So um in a baby, um, FRC and closing capacity are much closer together uh, than they are in an adult. And the reason for that is because uh, their chest wall, their thoracic wall is so much more compliant um, that when you take a breath in, normally like your chest wall and your lungs should kind of expand together sort of like at, at a similar rate. But what happens is because their chest wall is compliant, it kind of contorts uh, as generated negative pressure within your chest. Um, and it, the chest wall, because it doesn't excurs out in the way that you need it to, uh, will kind of prevent lung excursion a little bit. So this is the same thing in people with poorly developed chest wall musculature. So for example, people with muscular dystrophy, spinal muscular um, atrophy, whatever, they don't develop strong chest walls. Their chest walls are more compliant. So for the same reason, their FRC is naturally lower than, than you or I who d do not have a muscular um, problem. Yeah, very interesting. Anything else you want to add for grunting before we move along? Well, the thing with grunting is uh, coming back to it. You said it was for oxygenation. You're not wrong. And Alice said it was for ventilation. And she's not wrong. But why do we do it? Like, why does your brain decide to grunt? It has a reason. And, and honestly, like, I'm sort of spoiling the point of this entire discussion. But uh, but we already know the answer. People in the early 1900s uh, did like some many horrible trials on animals to kind of figure this out. But our brain and our brainstem response to CO2 changes. Um, you know, and when it detects a higher CO2, it will breathe harder and faster. It will make you retract. It will make you tachypnic. It will make you flare. It will make you grunt. But Oxygen doesn't do the same thing. I mean, you guys may have seen a child uh, with, say, like a tetralogy of flow, a, a limited uh, pulmonary uh, outflow obstruction. Uh, and those kids, where do their stats live usually? Yeah, you're starting in the mid-80s and the 70s. And yeah. why are you not working to breathe? Because your respiratory are centers you? are not triggered. Exactly, exactly. You don't have pulmonary overflow. You don't have pulmonary edema. But your stats are low. 
uh, but you have no increased work of breathing. Exactly. So we know that respiratory drive is not driven by oxygen. So I will say that when you grunt, your body is trying to ventilate and oxygenation just happens as a byproduct. Uh, to be fair, these things are not so mutually exclusive because like while we talk about pressure as the means to oxygenate, anytime you generate a larger tidal volume, you're also going to generate a larger pressure. So you're going to oxygenate better if you ventilate better, but your body is trying to ventilate. Sure. Such a subtlety, but a really key point when we try to understand our patient's physiology. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of PeteScript. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcasts at gmail.com. Check out pedscript.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscript on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thanks again for listening.